0: and fellow cinematographer Jared Levy we are sponsored by Masters of Motion this week is with ASC cinematographer Tom Siegel Tom has had an unbelievable career I think one of the most prolific cinematographers in Hollywood three solid decades a full 30 years um, plus dating all the way back to the 80s of having an incredible career and um, some of the some of the projects that we talked about were the usual suspects X-Men Three Kings um, Valkyrie he also was a cinematographer on last year's uh, Oscar-winning uh, film, Bohemian Rhapsody. So, I mean, it, it kind of just goes on and on throughout his whole career to the point that there was so much to talk about that it actually presented an interesting and daunting challenge, to be honest, of, of how much there is to discuss. I mean, Jesus, I went through all of, all of the titles and I didn't even mention Drive. He shot Drive. So it's like you know it, it it was challenging um I'll admit and it was something along the lines of wanting to talk about so much um and really being able to pull or or dive into so many things that we kind of just went down the list and asked about individual moments from each project um working with different directors and what was that, what that that what that was like for him any any major takeaways from any given movie and really just trying to hop around his his um filmography and kind of pick his brain in that way and he was you know, it's a unique episode in that way um not something that I normally do and I think it was because his career kind of presented that type of opportunity with so much consistency I mean because it is really unbelievable it's like you know a, a couple of movies a, a year every year that you have heard of for 30 years so that's just really remarkable and um very very like low key Speaker about all of it. I think he says a lot more with um with his work and his visuals, and uh, it was a really interesting conversation for that reason. Um, this this all was recorded prior to the current quarantine and pandemic that we find ourselves in, so um that is why it, it really didn't come up. And uh, like I mentioned, we are sponsored by Masters in Motion. They are a filmmaking conference that happens every year in Austin, Texas. It'll happens in December, three days, and um, speakers. Similar to Tom Siegel, ASC cinematographers, ACE editors, big-time production designers, they all come down. And um, it's not only for the education that happens in the presentations, but also the social aspects, uh, going out for a drink afterwards, not just with the speakers, but also with the fellow attendees who are all good filmmakers in their own right. So it's a really great uh, socializing event. You can go to shooteditlearn.com to learn more about that. And so this week is with ASC cinematographer Tom Siegel. Thanks for being here. So, we're talking to you now. Are are you in the middle of a a project right now that that you're working on?
1: Yeah, I've just completed a film called Cherry, Mm -hmm. which was uh, directed by the Russo brothers and starring Tom Holland. Oh, wow. Um, Finished that uh, just at the beginning of February and am now doing a uh, pilot uh, tentatively called La Brea for Tor Frudenthal Mm -hmm. and uh, NBC Television.
0: That sounds exciting. What part of the process are you in with that?
1: We're prepping and we did a hair and makeup test yesterday and we go to camera next Friday.
0: Cool. Um, I'm, I'm always curious to talk about people with what they're doing with testing and how much detail goes into um, the shoots. I know that you know the more detail that you can get in terms of it being similar to the shoot itself, the better. How, how much do you try and, and emulate... Um, as much as you can, the the scenarios and the sets, and how far do you do you push your tests?
1: It varies a lot from project to project. A lot of it has to do with how much prep time you're given. Sure. Um, there are, are times, uh, for instance, I uh, movie before last I did for Spike Lee, and I came in, you know, with very little prep time, and so uh, in that case, you kind of have to. Do a little bit of testing if you get a chance, but you're basically going on uh, instinct and uh, experience. In the ideal world, and especially if the film is more complicated or demands more uh, a, a greater variety or a more experimental look, mm-hmm. that's what you know. You want all the time testing that you can get, um, and it, the testing can be any number of things. It can be, you know, how you develop your film. Uh, what lenses you're using, what cameras you're using, filtration, uh, types of lighting. Um, If it's digital, what kind of uh, uh, digital process you're doing afterward. Um, In the digital world, we often create what we call LUTs, which are lookup tables, which is basically the sort of uh, uh, color palette filter Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: you're sending stuff through. So, It it can vary from, you know, on a movie like Superman Returns, where there was a decision had to be made between film and digital. And we did a very, very extensive set of tests um, to something more simple uh, as, you know, we know what we're using, camera and lenses. Let's see what the actors look like.
0: No, that, that's good to hear. And not surprising that it really does vary um, quite a bit from project to project and what, I mean, even what the project needs in terms of what the tests to make them relevant, I'm sure that's always changing. But that's that's good to know. Going back, I, I, I tend to like to look over everybody's career and, and see what questions kind of pop up just by looking at the projects that they've been doing since the beginning. And I, I noticed that in the beginning there was at least, uh, you know, It's it's looked like for there was like five years where every all of the work was documentary and then it got started off in doc. And for someone who has done, um, you know, decades of great narrative filmmaking, uh, I'm curious about that start off in documentary and and why that why it happened that way. And um, was it your intention always to get to narrative or did you kind of um, end up there after a period of time doing doc and kind of shifting your priorities?
1: Uh, Well, I actually, it's kind of a funny, circuitous route. I started doing, really when I was in high school even, making Mm. sort of little non-narrative art movies. Uh, This was in the heyday of the experimental film uh, movement. I was also a painter, so I painted. So I was really more like art, like I was making art. That's Mm. what I thought I was doing. Yeah. Um, And then... um, You know, it was the times, and there was a lot of political activity, and uh, I met a girl, and we became a a documentary team, and I spent a number of years um, making documentaries. Mm. But I think that that art background that I came out of was always there, and so I uh, kept pushing the limits of what the documentary form had to offer. Yeah, And I think that just naturally led me into the world of narrative filmmaking where you had more control over the image and over the process.
0: Yeah, as as you were doing that, and I think, because I, I kind of came up, I came up through documentary as well and then have moved into other things. And I think just that desire, like as you get better at the craft, um, the limitations that documentary has on the actual, you know, visual start to make you want to explore other genres. When you were getting that, Itch to do that in the beginning. Um, were you finding making that leap into narrative filmmaking challenging? Do you recall what what was that what was that process like for you?
1: Well, I think it might have been challenging in the sense that I really didn't know much, and I was sort of <laughs> naive. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, I think, I really didn't know how little I knew. Right. So you know, that that was, I think, part of the 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 learning curve. Um, And I think actually, you know, I'm very happy to have done uh, documentary in that I think I brought a lot of that experience and that sort of um, fluidity that you get from documentary being able to respond to uh, the stimuli of what's in front of you as continues to inform my filmmaking to this day.
0: Yeah, I was going to talk about that because I think that there really is some sort of, you know, Doc makes you quicker and, and your instincts better on a narrative set and narrative makes your, you know, lighting and visual language better on a doc set, um, it's, it's, do you, how often have you gone back to documentary over, over the years now that you're, you know, so well established in the narrative world?
1: Um, not a lot, you know, I don't get asked much to do it. Right. Uh, Would you want to? Um, uh, I'd love to, sure. I, I, I find documentaries fascinating. hmm um, I mean, it depends on the subject matter. That's the yeah, great sure. thing about documentaries. But but I do occasionally, last summer I uh, did part of a documentary uh, about comedy. Mm-hmm. So I, I do dabble, shall we say.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at, at those moments when you were making that, I don't know if it's a transition, but when you started doing narrative instead of doc, one of the earlier narrative projects was the TV show uh, The Wonder Years, and I know that it lives in folklore now, but I'm curious about when it happened at the time. Was it as big of a deal then as it is as, as it is now when thinking about it historically? Because, I mean, that seems like a really big type of a break to get that early on in a narrative career. Do, do you feel like it was at the time?
1: I don't think we knew it when we were doing the pilot. Yeah. And I actually took the pilot to prove I could work with kids and shoot very fast. Mm. And the script was like all, it was almost massively in voiceover and it's kind of funny because we all thought oh this is never gonna go to series <laughs> and then it uh not only went to series but it became a huge huge phenomena yeah so yeah in the end, you know i'm quite proud of it but at the time i think nobody realized uh how much it would resonate with with
0: people yeah do, do you remember how you got yourself in the position to have that opportunity happen
1: um, I don't remember how I got the interview, but one of the ironies about the interview, was a husband and wife team, uh, Carol Black and Neil Marlins, uh, very nice people. And I remember I had shot a miniseries for Edgar Sherrick called Home Fires, and I remember going in to the interview for Wonder Years, and they said to me, they said, you know, we were thinking about maybe even shooting 16 millimeter, but we... We, we really think it should be 35 because, you know, Home Fires was so beautiful and we wanted to have that look. Mm. And without thinking, I blurted out, well, actually, I shot that in 16. <laughs> and they were they were so like, oh, my God, I can't believe that was 16. And there went my chance to shoot 35. So <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I remember that aspect of the interview. How I got the interview, I'm, I, I, I'm not quite sure.
0: Uh, that's that's funny though it's nice to hear that that you know the little things that happen in interviews that you can't plan for and you just say something off the cuff and it ends up being impactful um yeah you
1: gotta be maybe think a little careful here more I, carefully
0: I mean it worked you, uh, so yeah. you know I don't know what to say like you, you got the show
1: <laughs> yeah there you go
0: um what what would you consider to be your big your I think first break in terms of the narrative filmmaking uh, well,
1: probably the first break, in, in some ways my um, my um, film school, you might even call it, would be Haskell Wexler giving me the opportunity to shoot my first feature, which was Latino.
0: Oh, wow. And,
1: uh, you know, he based it on our documentaries. But I was really, you know, I was not qualified. For no? By any, by any stretch.
0: What um, makes you say that?
1: Well, I, you know, I had, I've barely ever been on a feature mm-hmm. film set, and uh, I knew very little about lighting other than what I had sort of taught myself from documentary. Sure. If I was him, I probably wouldn't
0: have. <laughs> yeah, what What was... So, like, so he, So Heskel Weckler gives you that, gives you that um, opportunity, which is also just an incredible thing in and of itself. Why do you think he felt you were ready for that? Because, like, what... What, how did that transpired? You
1: know, I think he, he had seen the documentaries, and he really he really liked our documentaries. And I think that you know, I mean, he, he this is a Academy Award-winning cinematographer who's you know one of the most you know brilliant cinematographers ever. So yeah. I think he was fairly confident that he would be able to cover any uh, you know any, any screw-ups that I had.
0: Right. I mean, um, that had to have been. Especially going in under under his eyes, and then also going in with it being kind of your first narrative experience, that must have been quite nerve-wracking. Do you, do you remember your feelings going into that?
1: Yeah, I, I was I was very nervous. I, not as nervous as I should have been. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that was good about it was that it taught me how to shoot uh, very quickly, because I was very afraid that you know he would think like oh you know it'd be faster if I just do this myself so I was able to shoot very quickly or or I taught myself to shoot very quickly so that he never felt like he was you know being held back so to speak Yeah, I think uh, that was a good lesson you know I think also I think because he was sort of unfettered from Hollywood wanted to try to Go very minimal with lighting and sort of those accoutrements.
0: It played into your uh, documentary background.
1: Well, it, it was funny because it, did and it didn't. It didn't. It did. But I was also like, oh, you know, I'm on a feature film now. I have a crew and I have lights. Yeah. I want to. I want to light. You know, I want to do that. I want to experiment, learn, teach myself. And he would always. Uh, he would always be like. Uh, You know, don't mess with Mother Nature, you know. It was was like, just leave it. It's fine. It's good. You don't need a light. And, I mean, he was a very magnanimous, uh, a great mentor. And I think sometimes when I thought I was very clever and I would say, hey, wasn't that cool how I, you know, whatever, and he would kind of smile at me like, like, duh, that's the way anybody would have done it. (laughs) So, um, you know, sometimes... Ignorance is
0: bliss. Yeah, I mean that's that's incredible though for for the first um, real narrative that you do to be directed by Haskell Wexler because that sets off just a career of working. Because I think one of the things I'm I'm taken aback by looking at the resume is just um, the scope of the work and the the list of directors. And I mean, starting it off with Haskell Wexler really puts it in. I mean, that's like the epitome of it right there. That's pretty remarkable. And then, I, I'm just go, been going through everything and, and and looking at everything and just kind of wanting to talk about just some of the the highlights that that are in that are in your filmography. Um, something in, sure. in, in somewhat of a chronological way. Um, with something that that you know caught my eye would be the usual usual suspects. And I think you know that also. I believe that that started your relationship with Brian Singer, right?
1: It did. Yes, that was. Uh... Uh, the first film I did with Brian and and that was really his first, you know, professional uh, feature film. He had done one he'd gotten a grant from a Japanese company for a $200,000 um, film that he did that went to Sundance and got a lot of notoriety and I believe it won uh, a prize of some kind. Yeah. And that's what gave him the credibility to be able to, to, to do Usual Suspects. And um, I had done at that point, I don't know, four or five movies, but that was really uh, kind of one of the first ones that people noticed, you know, that got a found an audience, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and when you were working uh, with him, how how did that relationship start between the two of you? And what what do you think, um, if you recall at all, what your early impressions of Brian were as a director and 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 working with him? I think uh,
1: he tells me that. Uh, he offered me the job because when I interviewed with him at that time, you know, I, like I say, I'd only done a handful of movies. So I had a, a reel, but because I hadn't done many movies and they weren't big movies or movies that people w- would have known. Yeah. I put together a reel that was like a, a short film. It was like a montage of all the best shots that I thought I had done up to that point in my career. Best shots in the sense, whether it was you know, you know uh, um, composition or lighting or whatever the particular thing about it was that I thought, you know, this shows a little something. So I put those all together on a reel, and he tells me that um, that was what... Impressed him was that I had made like a little movie. Like to him, he saw. Oh, you know, he edited it. He 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 mixed the sound. He showed his sensitivity as a film
0: filmmaker. Yeah, something more in general. But, and 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 I think it's yeah. also important to note that back in this in this day, which was probably must have been in, around 1993 when you're talking about Prep '94, because it came out in '95. Um, mm-hmm. The ability to do that stuff is certainly the access to the to, to doing it was not the same as it is today, and so no, it that, was much that,
1: harder. I mean, that's something I, to take into I, account, I'm sure. I had, yeah, I had to um, get together, cl- you know, clips on vi- videotape and yeah, the know, hurdles to, you know, are po- so much more. House and ask a friend to put it together for me, and
0: yeah, it was a nightmare to be honest. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it is nice to hear that that was kind of the work that, that took to get it there. And um, when you were talking about that film with with him in the beginning, do you remember the, the types of projects that, that or not not projects, the types of um, discussions that you were having about building the visual language for the film and like what his ideas were at the time?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I went to after I got the job, I went to to, to Brian's house and I. Brought my script and, you know, figured we would be shot listing. Mm-hmm. Sat down with him. I opened my script up. Started talking about the first scene on the first page. And, and he started just talking about this and that and the other. And it, the conversation just kind of went here and there. and An hour or so went by and I realized I, I wasn't going to get any shot listing done. But... <laughs> But I was getting a sense of the person and what he was about and what he was thinking. And at that point, I realized that, like, I was probably on my own to a certain degree in terms of Mm. uh, how I was going to shoot the movie and, you know, the details of it. But that I would get a, you know, I would get a response from him when he saw something. That's indeed the way a lot of that shoot went, which was that wasn't so much, OK, you know, I want to put the camera here and I want to go from here to there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to do. It was more like I set something up and then he would look at it and say, that's good. Or no, I don't like that. It's too slow. It's too tight. Or no, no. Why don't we come back here? You
0: know, it was so, reactionary on his part.
1: Yes, he was. He was. He would react to what he saw which was fine. So that became sort of the, you know, at that that point, that became our sort of um, process, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, your collaboration with him has become prolific. And so clearly things were, went well uh, during that that movie, considering what you've gone on to do together. Um, Do you feel, I guess, for the movie itself, but then also for the relationship with Brian overall, that you had a sense of what was being built at that time?
1: Well, I, um, I I don't know if I got a uh, so much something being built as you know you do more and more movies and you get a um, you learn what they like what they don't like you know mm. what you sort of already have enough of a of a language with that person that you're you're going into battle already knowing you know a, a certain degree of self censorship in the sense of you know. Uh, he doesn't like this, or I know he's going to like that, or if I can do this, he'll always be happier, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it it created a sort of a shorthand in that sense, and also a shorthand in, you know, the the way you work. In other words, you know, I'll set something up so that I can get some feedback, and then we'll go from there, that that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, he put a lot of faith in me, which was, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you want more specific thing from a director, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of creative uh, license that he gives you. Yeah. Um, so I think with uh, Brian, you know, did 10 movies with him. And yeah. I think that it, um, I think we both grew as filmmakers, you know, w- w- learned a lot together um, down the road. And and perhaps some of our, our uh, tastes, you know, grew uh, together, I know uh, very much in terms of story too, you know I think um i I'm very sensitive to sort of logic and believability mm. in a screenplay, even when you're doing fantasy, yeah, and uh, I think I have to give Brian a lot of credit that that's I think where I got a lot of that from
0: oh that's um, interesting yeah. it's cool, it's cool of you know working with someone for so long and evolving as an artist. Individually, but also as a collective, at times, and even um, influencing each other and being the reason that the other person is thinking certain ways over all these years. Yeah, that's that's really cool and really, I mean, it's it, it's special. I I think you know one of the things that as I was looking over everything that you've done, and I'm just like you know there's just so much to discuss because because there there's so many great films um, and it's just such an incredible career that you know you thinking wow. about the types of the directors that you've worked with, and just the, the opportunity to, to interact with all of them and be influenced by all of them, um, learn about art from them. Um, that's just very, very special, honestly. Um, speaking of which, jumping to Three Kings, um, you know, I know that Three Kings was that, that you were using interesting film stocks and doing uh, different types of processing methods. And I'm curious about when you're when you're making, and that was with director David O. Russell, and when you're curious, when you're when you're pushing things like that on a technical level, what is the discussion with with the director in that sense, where you want to be kind of really going after some interesting technical ideas? Um, is it really just dependent on the director being either technically savvy or not? Like, how how do you discuss those aspects of your craft with someone who doesn't do it, but obviously has a big say in in how you do it?
1: Okay, yeah, you know, and that's interesting because that process with David was not dissimilar to at least the beginning of the process to working with Brian. How so? Um, We knew we wanted to do something bold. Yeah. And when I first met with David O. Russell and I was, um, again, very similar to what happened with Brian where I was trying, you know, trying to get a sense in his, in his head, what, what he was looking for, what he wanted to do, da da da, and he, he, I, what I realized it wasn't specific. We mm. weren't. He wasn't going to like be a shot lister, or he wasn't going to make decisions, but he did <clears throat> give me some sort of philosophical, um, go, you, you, you know, goalposts, so to speak. And I went away, and I started shooting tests on my own to present to him. We we did a few, took a few go rounds. And I knew that um, we wanted to do something very bold. I also wanted to see if we could do it in a way that would be, I, I guess, the best word really is that it would be built into the negative, or and, and would be. Um,
0: yeah, baked in.
1: Baked in, yeah. That you couldn't. There was no. It was a commitment. Yeah. I wanted. There was wanted no safety net on what commitment. you were doing. I wanted them to agree on the look and not go back. So I did a bunch of tests till David was happy. And again, that was kind of a show and tell situation. So Mm -hmm. I would, I would show it to him. and, and, And it wasn't always like he would say like, oh, you know, it's too contrasty or too flat or too bright or too dark or something like that. It would be more like, um, Yeah, it's not you know it was kind of more of a feeling thing. Yeah. So finally, when he was happy, and we said, "Yeah, we got it. This is the look," we went to the screening room at Warner Brothers. And Lorenzo De Bonaventura was the head of Warner Brothers at the time, and I'll never forget this screening because David was sitting on my left, and I was wait we were waiting, and Lorenzo came into the room, and he sat down. Uh, next to me, and he just said, "Roll it." And I had never met him, and it was like, and the film started rolling, and this crazy-looking film starts coming up on the screen, and all of a sudden, I had a panic attack. I was like, "I'm gonna get fired!" Oh wow! I mean, there's no way they're gonna approve this. Yeah. This is this is totally out there. Yeah. You know, so I, I need to find another job, like right away. Oh wow! And. What am I going to do? That's all I was thinking about during the test. was like, how can I get another job? You know, what am I going to do? The test ends, you know, and the, and the lights come on. Lorenzo just turns to us and he says, Well, guys, if you think you can make it all look like one movie, like one cogent whole, go for it. Wow. I was I was like in shock. I was like, oh, my God. You know, they actually agreed. Yeah. And... I was in shock that they agreed, and I was like, oh, my God, now I actually have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was a funny moment, but um, I'm eternally grateful to both David O. Russell and to uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura for uh, uh, giving me the opportunity to do something that's, you know, that, that far out there because— um, Um, especially in today's digital world, I I think nobody would let you do that. You know, they would, oh, we'll we'll do that in post. We'll do that later.
0: Right, yeah, the bake-in is is definitely scary from a a studio side. Um,
1: And and that particular bake-in as well because the cross-process reversal in particular is something that you really have to know how to light for. Modern film stocks, by the time we started making the transition to digital had gotten so good that it really was sort of, you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, you can kind of, you know, light by eye and shoot by eye and, and be fairly confident in what, what you're going to see. Um, having said that, when you shoot cross-process reversal, you your exposure has to be absolutely perfect. Your lighting on the set will look horrific if you were ever on the set of three kings and you saw the way it was lit and the lighting instruments that were there and how it was lit you would go like oh my god this is going to look like a terrible episode of 1950s episodic tv um so it it was a scary process but it was very exciting and, and i i loved it and it's one of the films i'm most proud of it's it's um it's, it's a very difficult thing to see to see now because the digital version of it did the best they can, but it's just not the same mm. as when you see it projected on film. Mm-hmm. That time that it was in the theater was really amazing. amazing yeah. how it looked
0: That's That's really such a great story. I mean the the level of uh, commitment and confidence required um, seems heroic. And and also something that that I've been think that like comes to mind and I, you know we'll talk about other directors that you work with but it is that is that a trend that that both with Brian and David and then potentially with others that it are you gravitated towards and are and our directors like this gravitated towards you that are the type that kind of don't speak so concretely and are more like that.
1: It's not that I'm gravitated to them.
0: Maybe they are to me.
1: I don't know. I, it's funny because I've learned to work that way very well, but my nature is actually quite the opposite. I am one who, if he has the chance, very much would like to like shot list. You know, every every single shot, and yeah. you know, storyboard it if you can, and um, I, you know, know exactly what you're doing when you come to set. So, you know, I uh, that's more my my nature, but. I think in today's world, you know, you really need to, to, to thrive as a cinematographer. You need to be, have the ability to work in many different uh, systems and, and processes. Yeah. Because directors are all different. You know, they're, they're humans. They're people. Mm. Um, they all have a different, um, different way of working.
0: And, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, because um, what's also interesting about the relationship with Brian is the um, variety of movies that you've made together in terms of genre changes and uh, different different tonalities. Because um, shortly after um, Three Kings was uh, X Men with Brian, and for that one in particular, especially knowing that how you're describing him to be, I'm curious when you're working on a project that has um, source material um, and something that, that you can pull from. Of course you don't necessarily have to to a degree. How did you approach that knowing that there was source material, that you were pulling from something greater than just this one story? How were you dealing with that?
1: Well, it's funny, you know the the, the first X-Men I came to Brian Singer from some of his like collaborators and he wasn't really a comic book guy. You know I was into comics when I was a kid but not, nothing big enough. I had kind of Really barely heard of the X men, and you know I realized, oh, I, you know I'm going to sort of have to learn, but on the other hand i was I also didn't want to i didn't want to be influenced by the idea of a comic book movie. There hadn't been many done at that point yeah it's important
0: few. it's important to highlight for this conversation for people listening that we're talking about the original X men twenty years ago in two thousand, well before the comic book uh, era that we're in now.
1: Yeah, it, it was definitely... I mean, Superman had been done as a movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I don't think Spider-Man was done yet.
0: No, I don't think
1: so. I recall. Matter of fact, I don't know what, what, what was done before.
0: I think X-Men that this might have... I think X-Men might have kicked off the, the run. So it's our fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's your fault, man. You did it. Shoot.
1: Okay, <laughs> well, well, sorry about that. But um, the... You know, there's a very funny thing, which was that we were um, I was building a house right when we were about to start that movie. So I was temporarily staying in a friend of mine's apartment. Mm -hmm. And the day before I had to go to Toronto, which is where we shot the first X-Men, I went into a closet to get something out. And I noticed there was a box on the shelf and I pulled this box out and it was filled with comic books. And they were wrapped in uh, plastic. They were like collector's items. And I was like, you know, of uh, my friend who, whose house it was. And I was like, oh my God. And there was X Men, like X Men 1. He had the first hmm. X Men comics. Wow. Collect Like the actual edition. God knows what they were worth. Yeah. You know? So I sat there in the the evening before I was going to fly, reading from the original edition.
0: That's so cool.
1: These comic books, totally afraid I'd like tear a page or something like that. Sure. Get it smudged. And I got on a plane like now, knowing the lore, not only from the source, but from the real source, the actual. Yeah. Like, my God, that was it. So it's pretty wild. Yeah. The coincidence and and I had been there for a few months. It was kind of weird, like, oh my god, like, I. Yeah. You know, if i had only known, I would did, have been studying them.
0: Did did the weight of all of that play into any of the decisions that you and Brian were making?
1: Not really. You know, I think Brian and I on the first X Men very much, you know, treated it like a drama. Mm-hmm. Like you know we're you know we had done Usual Suspects, we had done pupil and this was another drama. Uh, it's just that you know, that people can do really weird things. It was how to make it real and grounded. And we also actually had a very limited budget for that that kind of scope of things. And, you know, the first time, right before it came out, when the execs at Fox saw the film, they hated it. And that was on a Thursday, I think. And oh, wow. they came out and they told Brian Singer, they said, you know, you have made a $75 million art movie. <laughs> and... They were, you know, they were kind of upset. And then Saturday morning when the movie made a fortune, all of a sudden it was like, see, we knew you could do it. We supported you all along. (laughs) All of a sudden they were like, you know, aren't we a great team?
0: (laughs) Man, that's talk about a roller coaster of emotions um, for you uh, hearing, hearing that news. And then but then, you know, the weekend box office comes in and you're saved. Well, th- that's, those are amazing stories about X-Men. Um, wanting to talk about, like, just looking more at, at, at you know, the list of, of projects, um, a project that I really enjoyed that I have actually been listening to interviews with Christopher McQuarrie about, who was the writer of, of Valkyrie. Um, I was curious and to... And the Usual Suspects. Oh, true, true. And the Usual Suspects, that's right. I was curious to hear about, because I think it's, it's interesting in terms of all of the different types of projects that you're shooting on where you know usual suspects being an original screenplay and then moving into something like X-Men that is pulling from all of that uh, source material and then with Valkyrie having a historical uh, accuracy element to it and especially when i was listening to Christopher McQuarrie speak about it how much he cared about that what what if anything changes when you're going into capturing stuff that is supposed to hark to realistic events and things that occurred was there anything that you were keeping in mind that you normally didn't or research that changed in a certain way for you anything about that
1: um well i'm actually really attracted to stuff that's based on you know true stories or that comes from real life um i just maybe it's the documentary filmmaker in me but i get a lot of inspiration from that yeah and valkyrie uh, in particular for me was very close to home because my mother was a a German refugee who Mm -hmm. barely escaped with her life. And um, Valkyrie, you know, for obvious reasons, was very close to home for me. And I I get a lot of inspiration from that history and from uh, trying to to get the story straight and to get it right. And we all know that there's a lot of debate and a lot of um, differences uh, of opinion about how much you stick to the truth when you can when you can stray from the truth in terms of, you know, retelling history. Yeah. Or how, you know, what dramatic license is expected and what is unacceptable. Right. Um, one thing about Valkyrie was uh, um, Chris McCory and Brian are huge students of World War II. And so one of the things about that story uh, was that I think they were very... Mm-hmm very much uh, interested in getting the facts right and getting the story right. And, and, you know, being truthful to, to what went down.
0: How does that level of accuracy that they want impact like your decision making at all?
1: At the beginning, it impacts it in the sense of well, you know, how do I tell the story? How, how do I make it look? What, what did it really look like? What, what should the feel of it really be? What was the, the tone of that period? Um, but then on a day-to-day basis, you know, um, it, it impacts you when sometimes you run into something where you, you know, oh, I'd like them to all come in from that door and then they would go down to it and say, well, no, that's not what happened. And you have to go like, all right,
0: well, I guess,
1: <laughs> I guess in this case, I just have to to go for plan B. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, but sometimes it's a good limit, you know, sometimes it, it's helpful.
0: Yeah. No, but that that is interesting to hear that you did adhere to certain levels of integrity about the historical accuracy, even to potentially, you know, the cinematography's um, chagrin, which is fascinating to hear. Um, And do you you think that in any one of those given situations that, you know, you were happy with what ended up happening in that scene anyway, just because like the limitations just created a, a new challenge for you?
1: Yeah, I think very often uh, limitations create new opportunities. Or, or I think if you had all the money and all the time in the world, it, it wouldn't lead necessarily lead to a good movie. There's a point at which it's like, mm. okay, this is ridiculous. This is not the way we should be doing this. Yeah. But, but very often limits and just like having a deadline, you know, yes. helps you get it done instead of you know to
0: ruminating, right? Totally. Totally. Moving on to a different project, another project that I was really interested in talking with you about was Drive with, with director Nicholas Winding Refn. Obviously, it's such a strong visual film, and him as a director, all of his stuff is just, you know, kind of dripping with auteurism. For movies that are that bold, is there is that because the the direction on that visual language is coming from the director himself? Is that what is allowing it to become so intense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... Nick uh, Reffin, I mean, has a um, you know very strong vision and is is a very bold filmmaker. Um, there's variety in his movies, and certainly, you know, I think Drive probably has has a degree of of uniqueness to it that it doesn't look like all his other movies, but all his movies have a distinct look and, mm-hmm. and are and are, mm-hmm. and are bold in their in their uh, execution. Mm-hmm. Um, with Nick, there was certain things that he was very clear about from the beginning one of them was the pacing of the movie he wanted that sort of slow deliberate cerebral pace mm. and I remember you know it was it was Nick's first movie in Hollywood so I thought oh well you know I have to get him a little extra coverage because uh, you know the, the financiers they're gonna they're gonna make him chop it up in the end and, yeah and so I had a B camera and we, and, we, and we did do bunch of other angles sometimes and he never seemed that interested in but I thought it was my job to protect him and indeed in, in the end there was two um, financiers, and one of them was like oh it's too long it's too slow you know blah, blah, blah. and but the other one stood by him and he got to make the move he wanted which was great and I, I was amazed by it and that also was what um, I think led him to be getting the prize at the Cannes Festival Absolutely. So, um, you know, he, he got to, to see his vision through, and that was pretty exciting. He likes wide lenses, and and I and, uh, have no problem with that. So we, we definitely uh, um, embraced that look.
0: Did you have the same freedom that you feel you were describing about Brian and, and David O'Russell Russell in terms of the, you know— them being a bit more emotional but not exacting and you would kind of just create things and they would say yay or nay? Was that happening here or was he a bit more concrete in his vision? Uh, he was more, I think, a
1: little more concrete. Brian can be very decisive when you show him something. Mm-hmm. Uh, David on Three Kings, I think, you know, it was, he'd only done two very small movies, you know, budget, small budget movies up to that point. Yeah. I think when he... Um, did Three Kings, you know, it was a, a much bigger canvas than he had worked at before? And so I think that uh, made it a little harder for him to sort of decide his approach. I think with Nick, you know, he he was very collaborative, but but he was very he had very strong opinions. Yeah. Which was great. Which was great. I mean, I mean, I I, I like that because it makes me. As long as it's not just no, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, strong uh, opinions at least give you something to work with,
0: right? No, totally. It's it's fascinating hearing. There's such a wide range of uh, personalities that you have to end up collaborating on and having their vision come to life. And you know, every DP has to go through it. I, I'm I'm curious to hear your philosophy just on because obviously you do a great job at that. You're 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 working with. The, the best directors and they can be so different or eccentric in, in how they're doing the craft and you're excelling with a wide range of personalities. What do you What's your philosophy on dealing with it? How, why do you think um, you have a knack for it?
1: Well, you know, I don't think I always have. I think it's something that you learn. I mean, some people have it more naturally than others and I think early on coming out of the art world and being a documentary filmmaker, I think maybe i thought a little too much that like you know i was making a movie and Mm -hmm. i've come to learn that i'm helping make a movie for somebody else Mm. and it's huge i've come to find try to to develop my skill level and understanding how i can help someone best because every director is different and there's some people that It's better if you just sit back and wait, let them percolate, let them evolve, let them kind of uh, come to where they have to come to. Mm. There's some people that are better if you jump right in. Uh, There's some people that want to hear about stories, some that don't. Some people that like, uh, uh, you know, your your reaction to a, a performance, some that don't, you know, as I call it, it's about reading the room. You know, you really need to, mm-hmm. to, and that's just you know, it's a skill that you you have to develop. You know, totally. really learning. How, you're you're there as part of a team to make a great film, but and I do believe there is one person at the front of it. Well, sometimes it's two. If it's the Russo brothers, you got two. Yeah. But you're there to service them, and in servicing them, you need to figure out what the best way for these particular filmmakers is to service them and still, you know, have the integrity of your art. Uh, The reason that they asked you and not somebody else. Yeah. You know, when I get a job, um, somebody's seen something I've done and they like the work I've done. And, you know, that's why I got the job and that's what they expect me to deliver. So it's not that you're just there, you know, where do you want the
0: camera boss?
1: But I do believe it is a, a a question of trying to figure out how to best serve your director.
0: Absolutely. Whenever I chat with um, ASC cinematographers, I like to just hear um, just what it means to be a member to them, and and what what they what they view that uh, aspect of their career as. I'm always just curious to hear that.
1: Well, uh, you know, the 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 history of the American Society of Cinematographers is is huge, and it's amazing. I mean, the work that's been done by that collective body is just, it boggles the mind. Mm -hmm. And so to be invited into it is like, like I was shocked. And I, um, you know, I'm very proud to be a member of that and, and, and really happy about how increasingly the ASC is getting involved in, you know, teaching and mentoring and promoting And especially now, broadening its horizons. And, you know, it's called the American Society of Cinematographers, but half the people aren't even Americans. So um, I think it's great the way that it's actually um, starting to modernize itself, just like the Academy is. Um, And I think it's only going to continue to do so, because each level of modernization brings about another. Yes. Um, So um, I'm very... um, it's been a very meaningful thing for me, and uh, you know, I wish that I wasn't taken away from home so much by work, uh, so that I could actually be at the ASC more because it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a it, it's a terrific organization.
0: Okay, well, great. Well, well, thank thank you so much for for taking the time and um, talking about about everything. I was. Uh really appreciated all your stories and and your your insights so thank you so much